0: Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus,
1: worthy to be praised. I worship you. Hi everybody, I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Baylock. Welcome to another episode of 20-minute Bible studies. Today we're gonna to tackle a tough topic. Recently a woman named Cheryl Ann wrote to us the following. Would you please clarify Gehenna and those who will go there? I don't want to be one. I know I'm saved through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. I still sin, make poor choices, but I pray for forgiveness daily while reading the Word. And she added, feeling a bit frightened. I sympathized and responded by sending her a four-part series that we had done on this topic, Andy. I then realized we hadn't done a 20-minute Bible study on it yet, so this one is for you, Cheryl Ann. Yes, Jordan, it's an important topic
2: and a somewhat frightening one. Quite honestly, I believe it is the most important topic for all saved people. I like that Sherylann already has the fundamentals down. She knows that she is saved for sure, which is assurance, but that she continues to sin. Now, we all do that, of course. And also that if she prays and confesses, she'll be forgiven. And that's promised in 1 John 1.9. I would say that she's solid on all of those points. So what is Gehenna then? do we have to worry about going there? We'll start by hearing what Jesus had to say about Gehenna. Let's listen now to the word of God.
0: A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, "'You have heard that the ancients were told, "'You shall not commit murder, "'and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. "'But I say to you that everyone who is angry "'with his brother shall be guilty before the court, "'and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. That was Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his Word.
1: Okay, so the first thing I want to say to any listener out there who is um, really against the idea of any kind of punishment or suffering of loss for Christians, just hear us out. We're going to use the Bible here today, and if at the end of this lesson you still disagree with us, and it sends you into the Word to read and study, then, then we're good with that. You know, we, we've done our job. Exactly. Okay, so... Let's use the SPACE method on today's reading. Again, you know, for any new listeners, SPACE is an acronym that we created. It's a little tool that we use. It reminds us to always think about the speaker, SP, audience A, and context C, SPAC, before the E, which is the explanation or interpretation. And we really encourage every Christian, you know, in church, wherever it is, if you are studying a, a scripture or a series of scriptures or a passage, always take the time to think about who is speaking to whom and to think about what the context is, the scriptural context, the historical context, because that's going to help unlock the true interpretation of any verse that you're studying. So the speaker is Jesus, obviously. The audience is his closest followers, the disciples, and the context is his famous sermon on the mount. At the beginning of this chapter, we read that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain or hill or mount, sermon on the mount. And after he sat down, his disciples, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. The crowds are there and they're listening, but Jesus Christ isn't speaking directly to them. He's teaching his disciples, who represent those who believed in him and had an intimate knowledge of his teachings. Yeah, Jordan, you could say that the disciples were hungry to learn and know more about
2: our Lord Jesus Christ. Like Ann and you, our listeners, today. Now, having established that, we're ready to dive into the E, or explanation. The phrase translated fiery hell in our scripture reading is the word Gehenna in the original text. So let's consider the standard definition of the word Gehenna. Here's one from the Blue Letter Bible, and it reads, Hell is the place of the future punishment called Gehenna, or Gehenna of fire. This was originally the Valley of Hinnom, which is south of Jerusalem, where the filth and dead animals of the city were cast out and burned, a fit symbol of the wicked and their future destruction. Now, if any of you out there are listening and happen to have access to a study Bible, I recommend when you have a moment, thumb to the maps, which is probably towards the back of the Bible, and there you, you might find a Jerusalem map during Jesus's day. So it's probably gonna be like, Circa A.D. thirty, A.D. thirty-five, and if you look closely, right outside the city gates of Jerusalem, you'll see that there's something called the Valley of Hinnom, which is probably, I would say, a few hundred paces south of the city gate. So, people who were listening to this parable back then understood the reference when Jesus spoke it, meaning the disciples understood it; that it was clear to them. That when you're talking about Gehenna, that's where garbage goes. That's where you burn the corpses, right? So, the Bible dictionary that we just read is historically accurate and technically true. But there is one problem. People read that and immediately assume that since the word used is hell, and it's described as a place of future destruction for the wicked, then that must mean that we're talking about the lake of fire. But today, we're going to examine that belief more carefully. So, a question arises. Does Scripture really support this?
1: Yeah, all verses about the Lake of Fire are found in Revelation chapter 19 and chapter 20. According to those chapters, the lake of fire is reserved, first and foremost, for the satanic trinity, if you will. That's the devil, the false prophet, and the beast. As well as those who worshipped and served the beast, receiving his mark during the Great Tribulation. It's also reserved for death, Hades, and the resurrected dead. But this is the unsaved dead because, remember, the dead in Christ are raised and translated at the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. Here's Revelation 20, starting in verse 12. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead, which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Thanks, Jordan. The careful listener
2: will now realize that we have already heard about three places that are called hell in modern English. We have Gehenna, which is the burning garbage heap outside the holy city, Jerusalem. We have Hades, which is a Greek word and refers to the grave, the pit, or the world of dead, aka the underworld. In Hebrew, it is called Sheol and has a very similar meaning. And then we have the lake of fire. The question we have to ask now is, what's the difference between these and who goes where? Better yet. What are the qualifications to end up in either place? Well, we already heard who goes into the lake of fire. What the Apostle John is witnessing in Revelation 20 is the great white throne judgment, which is a specific judgment for the devil and the unsaved dead. Now, this great white throne judgment takes place after the thousand-year reign of Christ Jesus on earth. Now, think about it. Contrast that with the judgment for believers which is called the Judgment Seat of Christ, or the Bema Seat, which takes place a 1,000 years before this. This happens right after the rapture, when Christ returns to decide who will rule and reign with him. Now, Revelation chapter 20, verse 13 says that the book of life is opened during the great white throne judgment, and the resurrected dead are judged, quote, unquote, from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And then verse 15 says again, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is for the unsaved who must rely on their own works to save them from eternal judgment on judgment day. Question, does the Bema Seat determine rank in the millennial kingdom while the white throne determine rank in the lake of fire? Just something to think about.
1: Right, because we know that the Bema Seat, um, if you go back to one of our favorites, favorite verses again, which is in First Corinthians 3, about the master-builder analogy, we know there's levels there if you read that, right? Like gold, silver, precious stones uh, at judgment, because that master-builder analogy basically describes the fire of Judgment Day for Christians. So there's levels, and of course the parable is the same thing. If you read the parable of the talents or the minas or any of those parables— You'll, you'll, you'll see that there's levels there's rulership over cities and there's uh, levels of reward so it does stand to reason that maybe you know it just it, there's nothing really the, the scripture is kind of silent on it but we can theorize hypothesize that maybe the great white throne judgment also leads to different ranks or levels I mean that's basically what dante exactly was talking about in, in his inferno right like seven le- levels of hell or whatever so th- there is some Um, evidence there to suggest that. As for Sheol Hades,
2: it's important to understand that all Jews who died before Christ, faithful or not, went to this place. And at the end of Christ's reign on earth, before the new heaven and the new earth, this place will go into the lake of fire as we read in Revelation chapter 20.
1: Yeah, one interpretation of this, it's a metaphorical way of saying that because sin will no longer exist— death will no longer exist, and therefore no place for the dead will be necessary. Another interpretation, the literal place of the unsaved dead will go into the lake of fire with the unsaved souls that were living in it. Again, Revelation 20.13 says, death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them.
2: Yeah, and if you think about it, Jordan, wouldn't that make death and Hades actual places? Physical places.
1: Physical location. Yeah, that's a good point. So, the question now is, who will be in Sheol and Hades at this time? Well, before Christ's work on the cross, both faithful Jews and the unsaved were there in Sheol. Before Christ, Sheol was divided into the paradise section, also called the bosom of Abraham, and the torment section. And to get a little more uh, information about that, you can check out the story of Lazarus the beggar, not the dead man who rose again, which is in Luke 16. That story says the rich man was in Hades in torment and looked across and saw Lazarus in Abraham's bosom or paradise. And a long story short, when Jesus paid it all on the cross, he went down to Hades' sheol and brought the paradise section and its inhabitants up to the third heaven. Matthew 27:53 says that after Christ's resurrection, many of these saints who were there came out of their tombs, entered Jerusalem, And appeared to many. Anyway, the bottom line is that Hades Sheol at that time of Revelation 20 will be a holding place for just the unsaved, and that place and its unsaved inhabitants will move into the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment, when it's shown that they're not in the book of life, and their deeds, of course, were insufficient to get them into heaven. And that brings us to Gehenna, Andy, the final place that we call hell, and the focus of today's lesson.
2: Okay, everybody. Looking at the context of our scripture reading, we could only reach one conclusion. Gehenna is for God's children. Or to put it controversially, believers can be guilty enough to go to hell if by hell we mean Gehenna. Again, not the lake of fire. And I know it's hard to hear and it's hard to believe, so let's look at it. The alternative is that Jesus is saying in Matthew 5.22 that anyone who says to his brother, you fool could be considered guilty enough to go into the lake of fire and be eternally separated from god now if that's the interpretation then jesus is establishing an impossible standard i mean would god the father take one of his children and just throw him into the lake of fire because he argued with one of his brothers
1: yeah and and some people will say well that's the point right jesus wanted to show them that they were unworthy and only he could pri- pay the price for sin how do you address that andy
2: Well, yeah, but listen again to what Jesus says right after that. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. He's talking to his Jewish audience about the works necessary to avoid this Gehenna hell. If his point were to rely on him, wouldn't he have just said that instead? Yeah, I mean, a, you think about it. Yeah, it's a great point.
1: Uh, elsewhere, Jesus speaks of other sins that can get someone thrown into Gehenna, and it's worth looking at those really quickly because that will also help us understand who Gehenna is for and what it's all about. Matthew 5.29, if your right eye makes you sin, it would be better to tear it out than have your whole body tossed into Gehenna. Matthew 5.30, if your right hand makes you sin, same thing. And then James, uh, the brother of Jesus, who wrote a, a short epistle, adds another body part in James 3:6, the tongue. He writes, "The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell or gehenna." And finally, Jesus told the Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, "They were headed to gehenna." Matthew 23:33, he says, "You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? And that word hell is Gehenna. Yet still, people are going to say, the scribes and Pharisees, they rejected Jesus, so they weren't saved. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was also speaking to the crowds, many of whom would reject him as the Messiah. And this is true. They'll say, so Gehenna is only for unbelieving Jews, and that means it's possibly just another metaphor for the lake of fire. How do you respond to that, Andy?
2: Yeah, you know, Jordan, the only problem with that interpretation, though, is that Jesus was primarily teaching his disciples during the Sermon on the Mount, as we mentioned. His disciples believed in him, so they had no fear of eternal hell. And to support that, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament. I'm going to go to Proverbs 31. And if any of you have ever read this or heard a study about this, you know, this is a very well-known proverb, but usually sometimes taught or read during Mother's Day. However, that's not the way God intended it. This is actually a description of a worthy woman. And in typology, us hopefully being the bride of Christ one day, this is some of the, I guess you could say, some of the bullet points that you can compare your life to and see if you're in this category. So if you go to verse 21, I'll read it for everybody. It says, she is not afraid of snow for her household for all her household are clothed with scarlet. So you would have to assume that snow is a bad thing, especially if you're a farmer, let's say, and you're growing grapes or figs or olives or what have you. Snow is a bad thing, right? It shuts everything down for you. But then later on in the second half, it says she's not afraid because her household are clothed with scarlet, and scarlet is basically a red color dye and it's a type of the blood of Christ in typology. So going back to my point earlier, his disciples believed in him, but they had no fear of eternal hell. They had no fear of going into the lake of fire. No, there was a different type of fear that God, Jesus Christ, wanted them to know about. So yet, Jesus was still telling them to be careful of Gehenna. So there was obviously a warning there to his closest disciples that he wanted them to know. And it's even more clear in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is telling his disciples about the hard road ahead of them. He prophesies that they will pay a high price for his sake. They will face hatred, betrayal, and persecution. And then he also says many things indicating that they are saved, such as in verses 20, which reads, It is not you who speaks, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And then in John chapter 10, he tells that they are his sheep, and that they are in his hand, and his father's hand as well, and no one can snatch them from it. Yet, listen to what he says here in Matthew chapter 10. Verses 26 says, do not fear them, meaning the Jewish leaders and persecutors don't fear them. And then verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him, capital H meaning God, who is able to destroy both soul or or your life. And your body in hell. And again, that word in the Greek is the word Gehenna. So pray tell, what does this meaning of Gehenna, what does it mean to us today, Jordan?
1: Yeah, so I think with that verse in particular is telling us about Gehenna, I think the most important thing we heard today is that it was a burning heap outside of the holy city. And that metaphor wasn't accidental. Nothing that Jesus says, nothing in the Bible is accidental. When you understand prophecy, you understand that when Jesus returns and he establishes his thousand-year earthly kingdom, it will be the new holy city. So the metaphor of Gehenna is a place of suffering outside of that city, outside of the kingdom. Elsewhere in the Bible, other metaphors are used. For example, the place of shade or outer darkness beyond the light of the kingdom. And the place reserved for the worst apostates, uh, the worst backsliders, the false teachers, is called the blackness of darkness. But these places outside the kingdom are much different than the eternal lake of fire. For one thing, the unsaved who end up in the lake of fire will curse God. Yeah, really quick. I mean, there
2: might be some really nice people that end up in a lake of fire. Very simple. The line is, you accept Jesus as your propitiation, as the one who substituted himself died for our sins. Because every single human being is going to have to answer to God for sin. So we could either take the easy road— and say, Jesus died for me. Or we could say, I'm a really good person. I don't need Jesus. I'm gonna go to God one day. I'm gonna go to my maker, and I'm gonna show him. He's gonna see my works, that I was just a great person. So, you know, I, I always, I often heard people say, you know, people are gonna be shocked when we get to heaven because there's gonna be people in heaven that you never thought would get in, and there's probably gonna be a lot of people in the lake of fire that you thought were gonna make it to heaven because they were great people but they just never accepted Jesus.
1: Yeah, that, that's one nuance of that passage of Revelation that we didn't really get into, but if you look at it closely about the, the, the opening of the books and the book of life, it, it says in that section of Revelation that they're going to be judged according to their deeds, their works. And to your point, those works can be phenomenal compared to the human perspective, like amazing works, but because they're not in that book, because no, no human's works could possibly be good enough to earn your way, they're at the great white throne judgment, and that judgment... There, there's no two paths. There's no trap door to hell and elevator to heaven. It's just lake of fire. Right. So like a really good
2: person that never accepted Jesus as their savior maybe is level one hell. You know, level one lake of fire, I should say. Whereas somebody like Hitler might be level 10. You know, so again, the works, yeah. how our, our, our works are going to determine our, our rank during the millennial kingdom and an unsaved person's works, good or bad, is going to determine their, their ranks of depth in the lake of fire.
1: Yeah, so anyway, but, but contrasting again, so the lake of fire is eternal, it's permanent. Um, the people there, in the case of the people that were serving the beast during the tribulation, it says that they curse God, right? Contrast that with Gehenna, uh, the outer darkness, places like that. Their people are weeping and gnashing their teeth in regret, right? And, you know, it seems that this Gehenna fate is temporary, it, it, uh, that, that's, uh, I guess that's the, that's the positive news. That's the good news. I guess if there is any good news about getting cast into Gehenna or the outer darkness, it's not forever like the lake of fire. It only lasts for the thousand years. Remember what Matthew 5.26 says, until you have paid up the last cent. So that indicates this punishment will one day come to an end. Right. It's a
2: prison sentence.
1: Right. And after that, Revelation twenty one four promises that God the Father— We'll institute his eternal kingdom after the thousand-year kingdom of Jesus Christ, and I'll begin by, quote, wiping away every tear from their eyes. So in the future, you know, Andy, we can get more into these topics, but for now, that's all the time we have, so that is our lesson.
0: Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple and to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show. I'm Steve Zioli. Until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound
2: the Kingdom Incorporated.